something a little bit different for you today. This is a sneak peek of one of our client weekly Q&A calls, where we dig into some of the more specific issues that our clients are facing. And this week we're discussing age and muscle mass, dealing with sugar cravings, how tight your lifting belt should be, and also non-steroidal anti-inflammatories such as ibuprofen and how they affect muscle growth. So if you like what you see and you want to find out more about how you can join the Propane Athlete community, then shoot us an email and you can always book in a call with us. So let's get into it. Hello, we are back again. It's the 17th of January. So um, if you haven't caught it already, we did an interview with Mike Tushera from Reactive Training Systems. The part one of that podcast is available from last Sunday, part two coming out next Sunday. So we have Zena. It says two attendees, but only Zena's showing up. Clearly, Zena, you're um, enough for two people. So what was I going to say? Yeah, some really good questions coming in. Very happy to see more of them uh, being posted. Make sure that you make use of this resource. Um, it's the best way to get comprehensive answers to, to things and uh, to dive a little bit deeper into certain topics. So, uh, Stu, come on as well. Guys, can we have one win and one struggle for the week, please, as usual? So my win is I qualified as a sports massage therapist on Sunday. Very happy with that. So I can start practicing as of this week, probably. I just need to get insurance. I've heard you need that. Um, and struggle is not practicing what I preach about sports massage and not actually going for one despite um, being a little bit, a uh, little bit overdue, I think. So, um, and just generally not keeping on top of foam rolling and so on. Zena, congratulations. Thank you. Anyone else joined us yet? Stu and Zena equals three people. Four people now. Tony. Hey, Tony. I'm not going to call you American this time. I promise. Hey, Tony. Cool. So, um, guys, if you have one win and one struggle for the week, just post in the chat window. Otherwise, we'll go onto the slides. I'll give you a couple of seconds. <clears throat> okay, I will jump onto the slides and then we can have a little chat afterwards if anyone's got any Q&A. Stu says, one win was deadlift PB at powerlifting competition. Struggle was starting the competition, made the wrong judgments on squat numbers. Great job, Stu. I think sometimes the attempt selection strategy is always um, a little bit tough to fine tune. I think going in with a percentage plan, but be willing to adapt that up and down by um, you know, up to 5% even, depending on what the speed is and often always helpful. Did, did you have a hand list, you? Often really helpful to have someone um, around to just look at the speed of the bar. Sometimes it will feel horrible, but if it looks good, you might be good for an extra few kilos. Xena, hilariously wobbly handstand push-up. That is massive. That's really good. Um, they're not an easy movement at all. Tony, win getting up early every day. Great stuff. 
Um, I think that's probably the hardest thing um, that I do every day, just getting out of bed. And it, regardless, I think the way that you can justify it to yourself is almost like it's hard to get out of bed regardless of what time it is. So you may as well just get up. Yeah, it's funny how like sleepy Tony um, convinces waking Tony that that extra 10 minutes is going to be so sweet and actually it's just as difficult 10 minutes later. All right. Let's get onto the slides. Cool. So I actually recorded a answer to this question a few weeks ago, but there's a few more things that I wanted to add. So what is your opinion on non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs? So these are drugs like ibuprofen, aspirin, um, neoproxin, neosporin, naproxen, that's the one. Um, American, we don't really, we don't use that one here, it's pretty strong, um, and diclofenac as well. So what these drugs do is they inhibit the COX-2 pathway. And this diagram on the right shows the general mechanism. So um, COX-2 pathway is associated with inflammation. So if you block COX-2, you're going to stop the subsequent um, parts of the pathway. So when you reduce that, you reduce inflammation and you reduce the sensitization to pain, which is the proposed mechanism for painkiller and uh, for reducing DOMS as well that some people use it for. Now, the unfortunate thing about NSAIDs is that they also, is that COX-2 is also involved in anabolic signaling, both with protein synthesis, as well as the proliferation of satellite cells. And if you were here last week, um, you learned that satellite cells are really the, the thing that dictates how much muscle you can grow in the long term. So when they did these studies on rats with NSAIDs, they found pretty detrimental effects with regard to muscle protein synthesis. When we look at humans, the evidence is a bit mixed and I've got some hypotheses for why it is mixed and I'll give you a conclusion as well. So this diagram goes into a little bit more detail and we can see that if you inhibit COX um, through the middle, then one of the downstream effects on the right is protein synthesis, muscle growth and growth signaling. So there's a potential mechanism for if you take NSAIDs that it's going to impact negatively on muscle growth. So other considerations before I give you an answer. If you are nailing the NSAIDs, if you're taking them all the time, you're having to pop an ibuprofen pretty much every time you train because of pain, obviously something's up there. We need to look at the origin of the pain. So if it's an aggravating movement, change the movement. There's no dogmatism here. And um, especially if you're not a competitive powerlifter, then you've got the liberty of being able to change your movements and not have to stick to squat, bench, deadlift in the full range of motion that is expected. It's just the um, kind of macho fitness um, writing and stuff that you see people you see people talk about that um, that you have to stick to those movements. Now, these drugs have different effects if someone is elderly or has osteoarthritis, and so the effects if the, if you're in those kind of populations, then they may be improving your ability to gain muscle or improving strength. And that's more from 
the fact that if you're elderly or if you have arthritis, you're going to have a higher level of background inflammation. So that would over overshadow any kind of um, other negative effects from the NSAIDs that if you reduce the background inflammation, that's going to improve your physical function a bit more. But if you're a healthy young lifter, then I would avoid these. There is also that these drugs have um, side effects as well, which mainly is um, gastric ulcers. So if you've already got a history of that or a hiatus hernia, it's something to consider and discuss with your doctor. So those are the other considerations. The main one being if you're recurrently using painkillers, then obviously you're in pain. Look at the source of the pain. Don't just try and, and blunt it. Now, what do I recommend and what's, what's my final um, slant on NSAIDs? Now, there's not really conclusive evidence that they even help with DOMS. Um, but even if you do take them for DOMS, I wouldn't want to put money on them being okay and not not causing you to uh, not being detrimental to muscle gain. Next, obviously, consult your doctor about it, especially if you're taking it for a specific pain. Um, and also on balance, probably detrimental if you are a young, healthy lifter. Better to either address the root of the problem if it's localized or if it's general soreness, try and push through. So that is a little roundup on NSAIDs. Also, if you're interested in some citations, there's a few studies there. If you're interested in anything in particular, um, let me know and I can try and dig something up as well. Right, next question from Andy. Does a person's age affect their ability to gain muscle mass? So this graph on the right shows the theoretical um, effects of, of age on muscle mass. So this is assuming somebody doesn't train. You're going to peak with your muscle mass as you approach puberty and early life when all of your anabolic hormones are at their highest. Then as you go through adult, adulthood and older age, then it'll gradually decline. Unfortunately, the same thing happens to your brain as well. So old age, there's not a whole lot to look forward to. Luckily, what we can do is we can mitigate some of these age-related drops. And uh, so the future isn't looking as bleak as it sounds here. The biggest thing is the biggest reason for this decline. First of all, this is looking at people who don't train. So there are people who continue to gain muscle throughout their lives if they are training properly and they've got everything else dialed in. But if you were to leave things to their own devices, metabolism, anabolic hormones will start to drop. Your volume tolerance and your metabolism also drop. So these are things that will affect your ability to gain muscle mass. So you do need to make adaptations. And if you want to hear about what specific things you can do to try and mitigate that, listen to our propane podcast number 27. It's called Training for the Masters Athlete. And uh, Johnny refers to anyone over 50 as elderly as well. So uh, I think you'll enjoy that too. Um, got a little bit of backlash about that. So what I'm saying is that muscle loss is not inevitable if we approach it correctly. And there's a study to show that the andropause, so the decline in the natural output of testosterone when men hit 40, so it's kind of the equivalent of the menopause, that it, it does exist, but it can be completely offset by resistance training, which is pretty awesome. So 
Perhaps that would also help with some of the other effects of the andropause that people commonly complain of, um, you know, the impotence, mood swings, and so on. Um, finally, osteoporosis can be mitigated as well from resistance training. And we're starting to see National Health Service and lots of uh, weightlifting in older women taking momentum from physios and health advice as well, which is really good to see. Jen asks, sugar cravings. I'm going back to night shifts with my new job as a nurse. I've always struggled on nights with eating. Sugar, sugar, sugar. Once it hits, that's it. Also, I am awake on nights, I'll eat. As I'm awake on nights, I'll eat, then I don't sleep well in the day and I'm hungry in the day too. What's the best way to approach night shift without getting fat, bloated and binging on sugar? So the two problems here really for Jen are that eating sugar disrupts her sleep the next day and also she just has consistent cravings and then she's hungry later on. So this diagram is lovely. I'm all about the diagrams today. So it shows how if you don't sleep properly, it has three downstream effects on appetite, um, metabolism, and ultimately fat gain. So number one, if you haven't slept properly, you're actually going to upregulate the appetite stimulating hormones. And so there's going to be a, your baseline hunger is going to be increased. The slight stress that you experience, the slightly elevated cortisol, from uh, not sleeping properly both increases the kind of reward value that you get from eating foods particularly to naughty sugary foods as well and also the elevated cortisol from being sleep deprived will raise your blood sugar just slightly so there's evidence to suggest that being chronically sleep deprived will make your blood sugar chronically a little bit high and potentially make you more insulin resistant and pre-diabetic. So it can increase you, your risk factors for diabetes. And also um, there's a suggestion that you might have lower physical activity if you are um, more sleepy because you're more fatigued, that's gonna reduce your energy expenditure and therefore also contribute to fat gain. So how to try and prepare against this? Preparation is always key, especially if we're being made to do a night shift. It's out of our natural rhythm, so we have to do what we can with meals particularly, preparing meals in advance. As you know, um, I'm a big fan of ready meals or just cooking in bulk in advance if, you, if you'd rather do it yourself and bring that with you. I know it sounds like a simple thing, but the, the more well-stocked you are, the more well-stocked your fridge is with things that you are looking to buy, looking to eat, then the less scope there is to go wrong. So that's number one. Next thing is try not to rely on caffeine to get you through, whether it's to get you through the rest of the day or through the night shift. Caffeine has a five to 10 hour half-life, which means that maybe 10 hours after you've had caffeine, there'll still be some in your system and it'll still be affecting your ability to go to sleep. Next is if the biscuits are available, then they're going to get eaten, especially when your willpower is compromised. Things like bedside chocolates in wards where um, if you're going to see a patient and their family have brought them some chocolates or whatever and you, they're, they're just always around, or if um, someone's brought in a gift or a, a helpful colleague has bought some biscuits for everyone to, um, to chow down on, it's always going to just 
be sitting there and nagging at your attention. So that's why preparation of your own meal, something satiating and high volume to make sure that your blood sugar is stabilized and not gonna send you off into a wheel spin for the next day is advisable. Finally, Jen, blackout blinds or an eye mask. These are really important if you're gonna be doing night shifts consistently because you already, when, when you are being exposed to light in the daytime when you're trying to sleep, you're not going to enter the deeper stages of REM sleep that you would be looking to, to get. So when you're doing the night shift, you're going to be more tired. You can counteract that by trying to sleep in as dark an environment as possible. And if you don't want eye, uh, blackout blinds, you can use an eye mask. I use one from Amazon, which is, I think it cost me £12, but it, it's got like a concave thing around the eyes so it doesn't irritate you when you're sleeping. So that's all to improve your melatonin production. There is also a chance that you can just get melatonin. Um, it's not... You can't buy it in the UK, but you can import it uh, legally, legally, not illegally. So that's one option. I personally do it, but I'm not recommending you to do it unless uh, you've been approved from a GP, obviously. So that's something else that I would personally use to reset um, my sleep cycle if there's jet lag or if I'm doing something like a night shift. Fran asks, how tight should you be wearing a lifting belt? I know the purpose is to push outwards into the belt to create tension, but is that best done with the belt very tight, so more tension is there, or with the belt at a comfortable tightness so there's more room to push out your stomach, or does it not matter? So good question, Fran. And the answer is really somewhere in between. If you go too loose, obviously you're gonna be doing Buddha belly to try and touch the belt and you're actually going to be losing some spinal stability if you just let it all hang out too far um, equally if it's too tight you'll also lose some stability just mechanically because you've made your waist artificially smaller and squashed all of your guts up into your into your chest so we want to be able to get one finger space into the belt so you can you can breathe it's a bit uncomfortable but you're not absolutely suffocated by it I would also just to hedge your bets, only use a lifting belt for loads of 80% plus. Don't be using it for warm-ups and things. Uh, you don't really want to become reliant on it. Yes, there is evidence that um, you can perform better with a belt. It's well, pretty self-evident if you ever used a belt consistently. It is a skill. So beginners that use a belt don't often get instant strength improvements. But as you learn how to use it properly, then you can start to get more out of it. And the argument is, if you can use a belt and you can get more weight out of it, you're going to be lifting heavier, therefore accumulating more volume and therefore progressing more in the long term. That's not to say only ever train in a belt. I think you should still do some beltless training. Um, I realize this is a bit of a general discussion on belt, but it's worth mentioning and it's a good springboard for this. To get the most out of a belt and also to use it most safely, you want to be pushing out 360 degrees. So what I want you to do, if you're listening to this now, is put your hands into your sides where your external obliques are, so just on either side of your belly button, and breathe in and try and push your hands back out again, sideways. So that's often a different sensation to what most people are used to when people say push your belly against the belt, because pushing your belly out is only pushing it out front ways. So you want to do that, try and get your torso into this 
cylinder that's just pushing out in all directions and you'll get you'll feel a lot more stable this is a big part of bracing and stabilizing your spine and generally being more safe when you're squatting and deadlifting finally don't use the belt as an excuse to neglect your core work just because you have some assistance here doesn't mean that um, you should not be doing extra core work there's uh, there's always it's always going to improve your lift and also um, help protect you against back pain, particularly things like side planks, which are often recommended by Stuart McGill, who is a kind of leading back expert for athletes. He advises against using a belt, incidentally. So that's something to bear in mind. I'm not convinced that using a belt shuts off your core. A lot of the EMG studies show that if you are using a belt, you're going to improve your core activation, at least the uh, rectus abdominis, but less so in the external obliques. But uh, yeah, why not use best of both worlds and use those parameters that I've outlined as the, up there? So 80% plus, one finger space, pushing out 360 degrees, and still doing core work as well. Right. Oh, yeah, also. This is a great article by Strength Theory, uh, Greg Knuckles. He's, uh, well, this is a, an infographic about his article and he, he discusses some of the evidence in there as well. So check that out if you're interested in more on belts. Strengththeory.com forward slash the belt Bible. Cool. Hey guys, so I'm just checking the chat window. Um, Stu, not really looking back, second lift of 175 was easy, should have been an opener. Handler may have given me the nudge to start higher. Possibly, but at least you got a total in. There's nothing worse than opening too heavy and either failing the lift or not getting it for depth or something, and then it really knocks your confidence for the next couple of attempts. And I've seen people bomb out having not got a squat opener and then have to just leave, and it's uh, pretty gutting. Hey, Denzel. Zena. Um, thanks for calling me elderly. No problem. Um, Stu, I used to treat night shifts like a day, forced myself to have breakfast in the evening, and then just tried to spread it out throughout the night with lunch at midnight and dinner either side before I go home. That's a good idea. So making your meal times, just flipping them and making that a way to regulate your your um, internal clock, I suppose. Um, did you use a an eye mask or anything, Stu? Tony, when do you have to start wearing them for belts? So yeah, 80% and over is, is what I'd recommend. Or do you mean long-term, after how long training should you use a belt? If that's what you mean, then I would say after about a, about a year of training maybe, um, or if you're using lifting numbers, if you're squatting 1.5 body weight, I think there and upwards um, is probably a good good time to to get a belt, and it's a nice way to motivate yourself as well. You say, "I'll get a belt when I hit this number squat." Cool. All right, guys, I'm going to hang around for a few minutes. If anyone has any any other questions, anything to clarify. Callum's requested to join. Hey, Callum. Stu, yeah, I have to wear an eye mask in the summer. In the Shetlands, the sun gets sets about 11 and rises about 3. Grim. 
Tony, to save time, can I superset some of my exercises? Which exercises, Tony? Usually for assistance movements, the answer is usually yes. For main lifts, um, as long as it's not going to be affecting your technique, but I think the way that it's uh, the way that some of the blocks are programmed, it would be impressive if you could uh, if you could superset them without starting to um, to struggle. Split squat, split squats with crunches, perfect. Denzel, no worries. Enjoy your dinner. Hey, Callum. Hey, how you doing? Very good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad at all. Is anyone else uh, on the call at the moment? Anyone else on the call? Did you say? Yeah. Um, no one else is speaking. Just they're all typing in the in the chat window. Oh, that's what I tried to do, but for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure everyone's happy to see your see your beautiful face. So. <laughs> beautiful. Um, cool. Did you catch any of the questions there? Yeah, I caught a few of them. Um, I caught a few of them. So. It was quite interesting with the um, the anti-inflammatories and stuff like that. I'd been reading like some articles that popped up on it before, because um, I when I started training again, but I was on a lot of medication at the time. I did actually find kind of recovery and to how long it took me to get back into things was slowed quite well. I thought I wasn't sure if it was because of the injuries or if it was because of the medication I was on. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, it's quite interesting to see the the flip side of it, kind of thing. Um, so. I think. Um... Yeah, it, because there's not really been studies on long-term hypertrophy, they're just looking at short, short-term protein synthesis or whatever. So it's very likely that, um, you know, there's no definitive evidence, but if that's your experience, that probably matches what's, what's maybe going on. Yeah. I tend to avoid trying to use them as much as, as possible. I'm not really a fan of taking medication anyway. Um, so. I think um, you hear of some high-level lifters that, just pop painkillers before they um before they train and like it just seems mental to me because that's like if there's a latent injury or something it's just trying to um suppress it and get through the training session yeah that's definitely an issue it's kind of like putting a, a plaster over a, a massive cut more than anything it doesn't really seem to yeah precisely <laughs> uh, mark says i have put this in my tracker but i've dropped Drop my cardio that you subscribed purely because of time. However, dropping it seems to have shifted my weight in the right direction. Would you advise sticking to this? I guess the reduction in stress in my body is reduced. I'm going to test this theory for the rest of the week and see if it carries on. Um, maybe assuming causation there, Mark, it, it, it may, may, maybe it is the case, but I wouldn't be too quick to say I've dropped cardio and my weight's dropped. Therefore, this has caused this. Um, the you, I think your logic makes sense that there's less stress on your body and if, if that was the thing that's causing you to hold the weight on then fine um, worth testing it out anyway um, I would say probably the net effect of the extra cardio if it's lower intensity would probably still drop your weight but yeah see how it goes I think uh, we'll be able to see more of a clear picture over a kind of two week um, average Right, awesome. Um, Stu, you think I need to get a 20-minute chat with you to decide where to 
go with training. Haven't really followed the program since mid-November. Yeah, it's due. Um, booking a call. Hopefully, we can uh, we can get some direction. Have you filled in the goal sheets, Stu? Um, if you haven't, take a look at it on the twenty-eight day shred. It's week one. There's a PDF to download and um, a webinar explaining it all, and it's absolutely fantastic process. Really gives you some clarity over all quadrants of your life and being able to just see it on a three-year time frame and distill down into one year, 90 days and weekly is uh, really helpful. Okay. All right, guys, I am going to head off unless anyone, anyone has any more questions. I had a quick one. Um, I can't sure. remember covered it in the video you did for Xena. It was regarding knee sleeves. Um, in your opinion, how difficult should they be to get on and off? Uh, <laughs> that I'm just like wondering if like I'm actually getting any benefit out of mine because I can pull them on really quite effortlessly. Okay. Um, I'm not really sure if I'm getting much benefit from them at all. Um, I suppose it depends how sweaty your knees are, but um, yeah, if if you're just sliding them on, then they might be a bit loose because the SBD ones particularly are notorious for just being an absolute ball leg to get on. Yeah, that's um, it's the it's the SBDs that I've got. Um, I can get them on. It's not quite sliding on, but it's very. It's it doesn't take much effort at all, and that's completely dry knees. So, do do you fold them over when you put them on, or do you just pull it on? Some, it really just depends how they come out of my bag. I can get them on without folding them. Um, mm. What they are, whatever they come out of my bag, like. Yeah, they may be slightly too big, but the, the problem is if you went one step down, it could be that they're just impossible to get on. So, um, yeah, not... Of... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it's kind of hard to tell because my calves are probably larger than my thighs, which does cause a bit of issues <laughs> in the bottom and the knee sleeves. Well, I suppose good motivation to start getting, getting on the quad gains then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Best case scenario, if you drop to size of knee sleeves and they happen to fit and they maybe would give you an extra two or three kilos, but nothing to write home about. And the downside obviously is that you, you buy two more knee sleeves, you've dropped, I don't know, 120 quid or however much it is for, for two SBD ones and you can't get them on. Yeah, that is true. You could sell them on, but it's just a bit of a faff, isn't it? Um, thinking about recently um, with squatting and whatnot, just about how easy I was getting them on. And I know people complain about how difficult they are to get on. I wasn't sure if I was maybe just missing around. something. Or, um, maybe just, yeah, you, you haven't got sweaty knees, so you can you can slip it on nicely. But um, yeah, I, I think the, the main benefit of knee sleeves is the, the warmth and the slight compression, the sense of the sense of confidence that you get from it rather than the, the mechanical benefit. Yeah, definitely. I'd be lost without them. I couldn't. It, it's only now that I can start kind of doing any kind of lower body movement without them again. So, right, <laughs> that's good, especially with if you've got um, if it's a cold day or something. Huge difference. Oh, totally, totally. Tony's asking, how wide should your hands be on a strict press? So, just outside your shoulders, Tony. Um, shouldn't be crazy wide. I think the wider you go, the more risk of impinging shoulder you can get. Um, Obviously, you don't want to be there. So just thumbs basically touching your elbows. And think of resting your elbows on your lats as like a shelf. Should, that should be comfortable. 
if you're finding your elbows are like straying out too far as you press or coming in, um, then that's, that's going to be some leakage of efficiency. Similar with a bench press, you want your elbow to be underneath your wrist at all times. So your forearm should be orthogonal to the floor. So a right angle in all planes. Well, in two planes, can't be in all planes. Awesome. All right, guys, if anyone has any more questions, you post them in the form that we post weekly, and we'll speak to you next time. See you later, Yusuf. Bye-bye.